The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, good evening. How are you guys doing tonight? Good, good. We made it here with the sun and everything else. So much to draw us away, and yet at the same time, here we are, uh, ready to give our attention to God's Word. Go ahead and open up to Matthew 16 before we begin. So we're in the middle of our series, or getting close to wrapping up our series, called Ecclesia, uh, which is a series that is, is meant to really just sort of bring to life all the metaphors that the scripture uses to talk about the church. And so we went in our first session, and, and we talked about how the Bible refers to the church as a body, and then as a temple, And again, as a family, last week we looked at the church as a priesthood, and today we are going to be looking at the church as an army, as an army. Probably there is no more unpopular analogy for the church than this one right here. (laughs) In the current... uh, cultural climate, this particular metaphor is not very welcome. Yeah, haters. Yeah, that's what, that's what comes to mind. I can recall actually here uh, not too long ago, well, I guess it's been a long time now. <laughs> it's just a decade. It's not that long ago. Uh, but I, I can remember I went to, I took a, a group of 80 kids from Cave Junction. We loaded them all on a bus and we drove down to San Francisco uh, to a big youth rally called Battle Cry. And it, it took place there in uh, a baseball stadium in San Francisco. And you would not believe the protesters that came out of the woodwork. They were, they were lined up on both sides of the streets. And uh, our, our poor teenagers from Cave Junction, you know, you had half of the crew were like homeschool, like semi-Amish, right? And so they're like, oh, you know, scared to even be in the city. They're like, there's technology everywhere. Um, and then, and then the other half was like wild hellions who like, you know, smoked pot all the time and hung out at the skate park. And those guys were like, yeah, this is awesome. And then, you know, our, our homeschool crowd was completely freaked out. But the big, the big deal was uh, the, the title of this event was called Battle Cry. And I remember all the news stories that, that uh, flew over the airwaves with that, you know, and how it was... Uh, you know, a militant version of Christianity. And really, it was, it was a youth rally talking about, like, hey, we, we have to be active as believers. You know, you can't just sit passively as, as believers. And if you say you believe in Jesus, that means something. And you have to do something with that. You have to love the city. And we spread out. You know, I forget how many kids were there. I think there was, I don't know, 8,000 kids or something, something crazy. And, uh, and we spread out, walked through the city, prayed for people on the streets, prayed for the city, and, you know, just demonstrated the love of Jesus in a real tangible way. But as soon as you bring up the word warfare, army, battle, you know, those kinds of images, it, 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 it takes people back to, uh, you know, the atrocities of the Crusades. It takes them back to wars that have been fought in our generation that have not seemed just. You know, in the last hundred years, we, we've had multiple military encounters that have ended with massive amounts of bloodshed and lots of heartache. And, and 
culturally, we've kind of come to this place where it's like, maybe it's better not to confront anything, right? Maybe it's, not, maybe it's better to sort of just take this, this passive stance on everything and not really press things because when, when, when you really begin to voice your opinion, when you really begin to stand up, people get hurt. And sometimes they even die. Now, there's lots of reasons for this. I mean, we could go into the whole, you know, the feminizing of our culture uh, and, and how that happened as a consequence of World War II and uh, both World War I and World War II uh, most of the men went off to war. Women stayed home. They took care of business. They worked in factories and, and, and cared for the country, kept it up and running while the young men were off and dying. And when those young men came back, they were broken and battered and traumatized. And for a whole generation of people, uh, it was a very female-dominated society. And that has carried on into the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and really has pushed feminism to new heights. Where it used to mean equality, now it means something very, very different, right? And so when we say that the church is an army, it doesn't fit well with the prevailing mindset or the current intellectual climate. We're being told more and more that Christians must dialogue with people of differing faiths. There must be more and more that Christians uh, give into, this attitude of give and take, that, that we really shouldn't engage or say anything about the culture in particular. Because to be confrontational in some way, to, to make a truth claim and to stand on it is considered divisive and militant and um, wrong, hateful. We are told that Christians should meet opposing worldviews with friendly conversation and not conflict. And obviously, before we get into how Christians should engage the world... Uh, it should be from a heart of love. We really want to look at tonight how the Bible uses this military metaphor and how substantial it is throughout the scriptures. The crazy thing is that we can almost go just about anywhere in the Bible and you're going to run into military things. You just can't avoid it. It's everywhere, particularly in the Old Testament. If, if you think through the Old Testament, think about how much of the historical narrative is punctuated with war or the very concept of war. In the book of Exodus, uh, the word war comes up five times. In the book of Numbers, 21 times. Remember, they were preparing for battle. The, word, the, the, the book of Numbers was the census being taken as they were preparing for going into the promised land, preparing for war. Deuteronomy, it's 10 times. The book of Joshua, 17 times. The book of Judges, 10 times. 1 Samuel, 8 times. 2 Samuel, 9 times. The book of Psalms, which is a book of worship, mentions warfare throughout. One of the writers of a large portion of the Psalms was himself a warrior king who people sang about in the streets and said, oh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David, a man after God's own heart, has killed his ten thousands. 
He, though he wrote these passionate psalms, was also acquainted with warfare. Now, this might surprise some people too, but God places himself under the war image multiple times in the scriptures. He is called the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of army, you could say, 278 times in the Old Testament. 278 times that comes up where God gives himself that title. Now I can hear in the back of my mind uh, people saying, well, that's the Old Testament. That's not, that doesn't really carry over into the New Testament. You know, uh, that's how people thought of God in the Old Testament. But Jesus really showed us that God's a hippie. That he just, you know, he's all peace and love and passivity. Now, you're right in one respect. uh, We are New Testament believers. But even when you pick up the New Testament, you hear words. You see, you hear swords clashing. You see soldiers marching. The warfare terminology doesn't just disappear once we turn to the New Testament. The Bible opens itself with this this picture of conflict, right? Before sin even enters in, apparently there was some war that took place in heaven. Because by the time the garden happens and Adam and Eve are there, our enemy is also present in his fallen state, trying to draw them into sin. There's already been some sort of war that took place before that moment. And then, of course, the enemy fires this shot across the bow. And he wraps Adam and Eve in his own sin. And pulls them down with him. The second arena of conflict also comes in a garden. In the garden of Gethsemane. Remember, back in the the first arena, in the first garden, when, when sin entered and the enemy was present and mankind was taken out, God made a promise. It's not going to go good for you, Satan. I'm sending somebody who's going to crush your head. That's happening. So, shot across the bow, sin enters in, God fires back. I'm redeeming. I'm saving. You move now to the New Testament, to this new garden in the Garden of Gethsemane, and instead of through obedience, the world being plunged into sin, or through disobedience, the world being plunged into sin, through the obedience of Jesus, now the world is, is moving towards redemption and salvation. You could say that the birth, that the arrival of Jesus was God dropping himself behind enemy lines. And every interaction that he has is this clash of two kingdoms. Whether it is a storm on the sea that he rebukes, or whether it is a demon-possessed boy and his father, or whether it's the the demon-filled demoniacs of Gadara, whether it's the, the, the temptation that takes place in the desert after he is baptized. There is a clash, a spiritual clash that is happening as he argues for truth. 
and dukes it out with the enemy and finally takes on death. God's promise is that he won't leave us held in our captivity. He promises to send someone who ultimately crushed Satan's head, and that promise was met in the Garden of Gethsemane, where through obedience, God's Son triumphed over death and led his church to freedom. So we're going to think about the church as an army tonight, and there's three things that I want you to take note of. First of all, the church is able If you're taking notes, the church is able. Second of all, the church is aggressive. The church is aggressive. And thirdly, the church is advancing. The church is advancing. So let's take a look at this first one. The church is able. In Matthew 16, we have this incredible story of Peter and the disciples being asked by Jesus, you know, who, who do people say that I am? And you guys remember that Peter turns and he says, you, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And we'll pick it up in, in verse 17. And then Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now pay attention to this verse. This is where we're going to camp tonight. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Here in this interaction... Jesus commends Peter. He says, Peter, you, you figured it out. <laughs> and my father revealed this to you. You know I am the Christ, the one that God has been promising. The, the snake crusher is here. You know this. And, and, I, and Peter, on, on that confession, the confession that you just made, that I'm the Christ, I'm going to build my church I'm going to build this this group of people that are called out of the world and and, and they're separated from the world for my purpose. A called out community. And they are going to be effective. They, They are going to do what is unthinkable. They will storm the gates of hell itself. And the gates will not prevail against them, will not prevent them. They're going in. They're going over the top. They're coming in. They're invading hell itself, and they're taking away from the enemy what he has said is his. That's the idea. Now, the setting of this, I went through this last week just briefly. The setting is incredible. There was this place in Caesarea Philippi that was a a, a temple to the god Pan, and... 
It was set into the mouth of a cave. The very back of the temple was the cave itself. And it went down into this giant pit. And and the locals said that it was, in fact, the gates of hell. So and it's in this place, then, where Jesus is talking with his disciples. And there is this temple that is referred to as the gates of hell. And he says, my church is going in there and coming back out. It's taking over. It's conquering. This is military imagery. And the very first thing that we could take note of is the fact that Jesus is saying that the church is able. Upon the confession that Peter makes, he's building a church that is capable is able to storm the gates of hell upon one simple thing. That's the confession that Jesus is Christ. Notice Jesus' confidence. Notice how confident he is. He says, this is going to happen. My church is going in. This will take This is not a, I'm hoping it will work out. Jesus is not wringing his hands and and hoping that the church will someday rise up. He's saying, no, this is the way it will work. This is how my church will function. This is how it will operate. Now, implied in here are, are several things in noting that they are able, first of all, it's battle readiness, Right? It's this idea that the church is ready for conflict. They're they're not still in training, waiting to be ready at some point. They're ready. Second thing, they are dedicated. Dedicated. 2 Timothy chapter 2 Verses 1 through 4. Let's turn there real quick. He says, You then, this is Paul writing to Timothy, my child, be strengthened by the grace of God, or by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Here, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he again picks up this idea of of military military, uh, imagery, right? And he says, Paul, uh, he says, Paul says, Timothy, excuse me, uh, I want you, first of all, be, to be strengthened. In verse 1, be strengthened in the grace of God. Let that soak in you that you're not earning. You're, 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 this, this is not a ladder that you're climbing, that God has already given you everything that you need in Christ Jesus. The provision is there. Let that strengthen you, Timothy. Then hand off what I've taught you. 
Verse 3, share in suffering. Be ready to suffer. Don't be entangled. Verse 4, in civilian affairs. And be loyal. The end of verse 4. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Commit yourself wholly to your king, your commanding officer. Commit yourself wholly to them. Listen, the church is dedicated. They are strengthened. They are ready to suffer. They're ready to do whatever it means to follow Jesus. They're not entangled with civilian affairs. They're not living for this life here, right? They've got one goal, one purpose. That's to live for God and for his kingdom. Why? Because their loyalty is not to what is temporary, but their loyalty is to that which is eternal. They are dedicated. Second thing that helps us to know that the church is able, that it is battle ready, is not only that they're dedicated, but that they're trained. They are trained. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, you can write this down. It's a fairly well-known passage, but it says simply this, that that when Jesus rose from the dead, one of his gifts to the church was qualified leadership. That he would put it in the hearts of people to train, to invest in, to rehearse biblical truth to the church so that they would be reminded, so that they would be equipped. Equipped for what? For everything that God had called them to. To be trained by qualified and called leaders. Trained for what? For spiritual conflict. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, you can write that down. It says this. It says that we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices. In other words, the enemy is working against us, right? He's trying to trip us up. But the church is not ignorant of the ways in which he tries to trip us up. We, we have information. We're being trained by the people that God has gifted to the church for the mutual building up of one another. We're being trained by the word of God and by the truth of God's word. Everything that we need to know to handle this conflict has been given to us through the resurrected Christ. They're ready for spiritual conflict. They're not ignorant of Satan's devices. And it doesn't matter what those devices are. It could be spiritual temptation. Those are, those are hooks that Satan uses to try and snare us and, and, and bring us in. James makes this point. He says, nobody is tempted by God. God doesn't do that. That's not his game. Rather, each person is enticed by their own lusts, their own desires, and they're drawn away into sin. And when they're drawn away into sin, that sin is conceived. When they give in, and consequences follow. Listen. 1 John 3, 8 says this. No one makes a practice of sinning. If you're living a lifestyle of sinning, the word of John in 1 John is harsh. No one who loves God makes a practice of sinning. You, you can't say that. You can't say that you love God and you're continuing in a lifestyle of perpetual 
sin where your heart is totally invested in living. It's one thing to have like, a, you know, conflict where you're battling against sin in your life and to be fighting against it, resisting the enemy that he might flee from you. But if you're just like totally immersed in sin and living a lifestyle that is unrepentant towards God, the love of the Father is not in you. It's real simple. First John chapter 2, verse 16, he says that one of the tactics that the enemy uses, these spiritual hooks or spiritual temptation, is the lust of the eyes. Or sometimes he uses the lust of the flesh, things that you want in life, something that you think is going to make you happy, satisfy that deep ache in your soul. Sometimes it's the pride of life. You just get to a place where you think, I can do this on my own. I need nothing from anyone. I'm self-made. I can do it. And those hooks get in people and, dra- and Satan drags them down. But we're not ignorant of that. We're not ignorant of hooks. We're not ignorant of snares. Two times in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. Paul refers to the snares of the devil. It's one of the, the, the ways in which the enemy gets a hold of people. These are spiritual traps. Now, it's really interesting. In the, in the first reference, in 1 Timothy chapter uh, Three verses six and seven. There, there's an issue of of leadership uh, being called into question. He says, "Hey, don't don't promote somebody who's a novice, right? Lest he'll fall into the condemnation of the devil and enter into the snare of Satan." Okay, what, what's he saying? Condemnation of the devil. Why was the devil condemned? You guys remember? He said, I, "I'll be on the sides of the north," right? The congregation of heaven should worship me. Pride is what caused the devil to fall. And he says, don't, don't raise a novice up into a place of leadership because pride will get the best of them. They'll fall into the same kind of condemnation. That's the snare that the devil uses to trap them because on the first part, on the front end of that, there, there's sort of this bait that's pulling them in. You're going to be like God. You're going you're to be more godly if you're in this position of authority, right? Same thing that happened to Satan. He's the worship leader, and all of a sudden, as he's leading people or he's leading the beings of heaven in worship, he says, you know, I don't think that's all for him. This stage... It's a shared platform. It's not, it's not just for him. It's also a place for me to display my worthiness, my beauty, my wisdom, my gifts, my abilities. And Paul warns young leaders. He says, hey, be careful. That same trap is right there. It's waiting for you. It can pull you in. In the second reference, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, he says, you know, for young guys especially, he says, don't get caught up in youthful lust. Now, a lot of times we quote that scripture thinking that it's about sexuality, but in context there, it's actually talking about prideful debates. 
Like, don't get drawn into prideful debates. That's a young man's thing, you know, like, well, I know the truth. Here's the deal. If you guys don't know this, uh, I'm going to let you in on a little secret on guy culture, okay? Guys, you'll know immediately. Girls, you'll have seen it. (laughs) When you don't know something, you just say it more confidently. And when you say it more confidently... People assume you know it. That's, that's what young guys do. The older you get, the more you start to go, eh, I don't know. I'm still learning. <laughs> right? A measure of humility gets worked in because you've been wrong a lot over the course of life. Being humble from the start is a lot easier than eating crow after the fact. He says, oh, young guys, don't get caught up in youthful lusts and getting caught up in these debates and entering into the snare of the devil. What's the, what's the hook there again? What's the snare? Well, you're just going along. You think you're super spiritual. Everything is going great. And then all of a sudden, you're being strung up by the neck because pride has gotten its hold on you. Paul tells Timothy, avoid these things. They're trained by spiritual leaders for spiritual conflict. Uh, They're trained to, to know how to look out for the hooks, the spiritual temptation, the snares, the spiritual traps, the accusations, that is spiritual condemnation. Another one of the tactics of the enemy, he, he comes at you, he assaults you with condemnation. You really suck at this Christian thing. You're not very good. You should be more holy than you actually are. Heaping on condemnation. Here's, here's a really good kind of a, a litmus test to figure out whether or not you're experiencing conviction from the Lord or condemnation from the enemy. See, conviction will always draw you close to God. It's God saying, come back to me. Conviction draws you to repentance and puts you in a place of dependency upon the gospel. Condemnation pushes you away. It says, you are not and never will be. You should just hide. You should just run away. And see, we're not ignorant of those devices. The gospel is something we preach to ourselves as a community of believers again and again and again as we keep drawing each other back. Come back to the Lord. He is gracious. He will receive you. The gospel is enough. We're trained for spiritual conflict. The hooks, the spiritual temptation, the snares, the spiritual traps, the accusations, the spiritual condemnation, the thorns. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7? He says, I was given because of the abundance of revelations that God had given me. I was given a thorn in my flesh, and then he called it something. He said, it was a messenger of Satan. What's a thorn? It's a wound. It's those things that wound us and hold us back. Three times he asked God, please just take this thing away from me. And God says, no, I'm leaving the wound there. You know why? Because that wound, 
call, is making you depend on me. You're walking with a limp, and it makes you have to kind of lean on a walking stick. That's how I want you to live. I want you to limp through life. I want you to depend on me because of the wound. That wound is going to bring you back. Now notice the insidious nature of wounds and how the enemy uses them. See, here's what happen, happens, here's what happens in, in people, maybe in childhood or uh, you know, sometime when you're growing up, you, you ha- experience something that is hurtful. That, that somehow makes a statement about your worth or value or makes you feel shame or tells you, preaches to you a message that people will give up on love and they'll give up on you and that you're unlovable, that there's no such thing as unconditional love, eternal love. People always leave. People always give up. People always hurt. They're always looking out for themselves. These lies are are, are pushed into the soul of a person like a thorn into the side. And, and, And they preach to us this message about who we are and about who God is. But we're not ignorant of those things. You know what we do with our wounds? We do what Paul did. We take them to Jesus. We go, here's this wound. What do I do with this? I'm hurting. I'm wounded. I'm bleeding. And Jesus comes in and says, let me apply my grace to you. You may have the wound. It may be there for a while. It may push you to me again and again and again. And you may have to come back and hear once again my love for you and be reminded again of what kind of father I am. And you may have to realign your heart to think about what love actually looks like. You may have to have that over and over again. But just keep coming to me and I'll keep pouring out my grace. They're ready, they're trained for spiritual conflict, not ignorant of Satan's devices. They know what to do with the hooks, with the snares, the accusations, the thorns, which are spiritual trials, and the schemes. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. This is probably one of the more famous passages on spiritual warfare Beginning in verse 10, it says this, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is spiritual assault. And I'm going to go through in just just a minute here each of the, 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 the weapons of our warfare, if you will. And take a look at those things. But here's, here's the big idea. Personal assault against you. Assault against your heart. Assault against your mind. Assault against the truth. Assault against the gospel. Assault against your faith. Assault against God's word. There's attacks that are personal. They're coming against you from the enemy. And God has equipped you with everything that you need to defend yourself. 
to hold on to your righteousness, to grab a hold of the truth, to know the word, to have faith, to be planted in the gospel, to have your mind protected and to know your eternal destiny, your salvation. Those personal assaults God has provided for because all of the devil's, all of his schemes against you can be defended. God has not left us ill-equipped. Listen, the church is able, it's dedicated, it's trained. Thirdly, number C, letter C, it is equipped. It is equipped. Here in this passage, Paul goes on to, to, to spell out for us the weapons of our warfare. Listen, our weapons are for a purpose. These personal attacks that come against us They can affect your walk, your stand in the gospel. They're attacks against the truth, the belt of righteousness. You can see here, this is the the Roman um, armor, and and that's what Paul is alluding to. And there's some really interesting features here uh, that I I think are worth taking note of. Uh, First of all, let's look at the feet. The feet, they have these sandals here. And and one of the things that uh, Roman soldiers would do is they would take nails and they would drive them through the bottoms of their sandals so that they could make cleats. And these nails would would stick out and they would have sort of spikes that went down. Now, what they found was this this accomplished two things. First of all, when you were in battle, you were sure-footed, Right? Here's the second thing that happened. You know, they would, they would grab onto dirt, made it really hard to run. So when you were in battle, you planted, found some ground, you had one option, keep advancing. Because running, not easy to do. I think another interesting feature is, is, is the shield here. The shield was, was designed in such a way that, that the Romans, first of all, would kind of cover like three quarters of the body, would go from like the nose down to about mid-shin. And, um, and, and, and what they would do is in battle, a lot of times you'd be shot at with arrows, right, from a city wall or from, uh, you know, a, an opposing army or whatever. So they, they made it so that you could link these shields together and you could kind of get crouched down behind this shield. And as the arrows were flying, you were kind of linked up. And, and then what you would do is you have another guy who's like right next to you. His shield is also there. And then the next guy. And then the guys that would come behind you, they would crouch in and they put a shield over the top of you. And pretty soon, you're like a human tank right there. And the arrows would be flying. Now, these shields were, were interesting. They were wooden. They had multiple layers of wood. But then they were covered on the outside with leather with a metal rim around the edge. Why the leather? Well, before they would go into battle, they would soak their shields in water. It was like a chamois cloth over the outside. And when they would soak it in water, the, the leather would wick up all the water. And a lot of times... The arrows that were flying were were covered in pitch, and they were lit on fire. And so the shield then would catch those arrows, and and it could extinguish them because the leather, first of all, leather doesn't burn super well. And when it's soaked with water, it can extinguish those fiery darts that are fired by the enemy. And so this is the image that Paul's using. He's saying, hey, we got to protect your mind, protect your heart 
right? Hold yourself together. The, the belt of truth actually was kind of the, the tie-in. You'll see the, uh, see the leather uh, straps that came down that was attached to the belt. And the leather straps actually held kind of all of the armor together. So you had the, the breastplate. Well, without a belt across the bottom, it would just kind of flop around. So you anchored it to your waist with this belt, right? And then the leather straps that went down below would protect you in battle, kept you, uh, you know, sort of like a, a kilt, if you will. It made it really easy to move around. You could run and nothing would encumber you while you were in the middle of, uh, of battle. And then, of course, the sword of the spirit, the sword that is talked about. So let, let's read through what he says. The sword was this, you know, just an easy to use, easy to swing, not too cumbersome. You didn't have to be, you know, a, a, an expert necessarily. You just had to be able to hack with it, right? You just had to be able to go out and, and take a swing at people. Now, of course, the more expert that you were, the better you did in battle, the less wounds you would receive. But basically, any guy that was even a lunk could grab a sword and start swinging it and, and be okay in battle. Now, here's the deal. As we read through this, you're going to see this analogy come together. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand for him. First of all, notice whole armor. He's saying, don't leave your helmet at home. Right? Don't drop your shield. Don't lay down. Every piece is essential. Now he goes on. He says, verse 13, having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What is holding all of your armor together is the truth. Hang on to it. Fasten it tight to you. It's what secures the breastplate of righteousness. It's what holds you together in battle. Hang on to the truth. Cinch it down tight. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What does what the breastplate cover? It covers your heart. It protects you. Oftentimes, one of the ways that the enemy will attack us is, is he, he says, you're, you're not righteous. You're not holy. Your heart is terrible. Your heart is awful. And, and we say, but it's not my righteousness that protects me. If it was just my rib cage, I'd be open to your attacks. But I've got something external on the outside of me that is shielding me. And it's a righteousness that comes not from me, but from something so much stronger than I am. He says, and as for shoes, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, those sandals with cleats, he's like, hey, be planted in the gospel of peace. Don't retreat. Let your feet be steadfast. In the middle of the battle, Satan is going to try and take away your peace. He's going to try and put you to flight and try and make you run and freak you out. I'm just telling you, plant yourself in knowing God is in control. The end is already written. Redemption is sure. 
Stay there and stand steadfast in that place and just keep advancing and keep advancing and keep advancing. In all circumstances, verse 16, take up the shield of faith in everything. Faith, what's that mean? Like trust in God, right? In everything. Just have that shield up all the time. Just start, make it your discipline that wherever you go, wherever the battle is that you face, like be there with a trust in God, that God has you in this. That's how you defend yourself. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take on the helmet of salvation. How do I protect my mind? With the knowledge of what Jesus has accomplished for me. When I'm, I'm assaulted when, late at night and, and, and I'm, I'm hearing, you know, you're going to fail or you're, you're terrible or your worth or your value is this. Or, you know, and, I, and I can't sleep and my mind is assaulted. What do I do? How do I defend myself? Remind myself of the great salvation that God has provided through his son. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. Of course, the sword is connected to the word of God. Listen, your walk, the truth, your faith, your righteousness, your mind, your connection to others through faith with this shield, right? Like if you were just facing off the arrows by yourself, it might be kind of scary. But all of a sudden, when you've got a tank of believers around you and every part of you is protected because you're not alone, that's what the church is supposed to look like. It's us, shields linked, moving, advancing, taking ground together. It says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In the list of armor here, the one thing that he doesn't include is where your catapult is or your rocket launcher or your ICBMs. But right at the end, he says, prayer. That's where you call in an airstrike. You go, God, I, I can't see how to defend myself here, but you see it all. Now move, act on my behalf. You said you love me. You promise that you will, Lord, come to my defense. You see, the church is able. The church is dedicated, it's trained, it's equipped for the battle with all of the armor that it needs to defend itself. And lastly, in verse 18, it says, and the church is alert. Why? Because 1 Peter tells us that we're supposed to be alert, right? 1 Peter 5.8 says, be alert because your enemy, the devil, is roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Look, and he, he's an opportunist. He just wandered around, just waiting for that moment. He's hoping that roar will freak you out and you'll start to run. And he goes, oh, there they are, right? And he'd come after us. But God says, no, the church is alert. Aware. 
not ignorant of his devices. Second of all, in our overall outline, the church is aggressive. Letter A, moving. Letter B, motivated. Matthew 16 here speaks of an army that is taking action against the gates of the enemy. It's prevailing against the gates. And this means that the church is not passive. It's not sitting there waiting for Jesus to come back. It's not an escapist body waiting for that moment when it finally will be delivered. It's active right now. It's storming the gates of hell. How we need to be reminded that that's the call of the church. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12, God says that he's going to bring judgment in Jerusalem. He says, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. God says, I'm going to bring my judgment against my house and my city to those men who are complacent, who do nothing. Remember Jesus, his rebuke in the book of Revelation to those who are lukewarm? Remember what he says? He's like, I can't stand that. It makes me want to vomit. The church is not passive. It's moving. It's active. Not only that, but it's motivated. It is motivated for, for, by what? what? What motivates the church? By their own experience of being rescued. Their own experience of freedom. They go, oh my goodness. Look at what God did in saving me. There's a character in our history, a gal named Harriet Tubman. She lived from 1822 to 1913. She was an escaped slave who became a leading figure in the abolition movement. She, She wrote this about the day that she crossed the Mason-Dixon line and made it to slavery. Now, for the second time, she had been caught one time before and returned back to her owners, and she escaped again, made it across the Mason-Dixon line and, and found freedom. This is what she said. When I found that I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory Over everything, the sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. Later, she would write this. I had crossed the line of which I had so long been dreaming. I was free. But there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land, and my home, after all, was down in the old cabin quarter with the old folks and my brothers and sisters. But to this solemn resolution I came, I was free, and they should be free also. I would make a home for them in the north. And the Lord helping me, I would bring them all there. 
You see, when you have been saved, when God has gotten a hold of your heart, when there is true freedom that has entered into your life, you cannot keep that in. You are instantaneously struck with the reality that there are many who do not know such freedom and that God has employed you in the task of reaching them. Not only that, but when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. That same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead the same spirit that's been fighting for your freedom, the same spirit that's been calling you out of sin, out of darkness and into light, that same spirit is now residing in you. And what do you think is going to happen? All of a sudden, you're looking at the lost going, we got to rescue them. You're looking at the gates of hell and saying, we got to prevail. We have to do something. We can't just sit here. The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is yearning in you to push you beyond the gates of hell into the place where the captives are held and to see them set free. Jesus is still fighting for the same things. He's just doing it through us. And lastly, but certainly not least, The church is advancing. In this passage, it says that they're taking ground. The gates of hell will not prevail. What's that tell you? They're trying. (laughs) They're trying to resist, but they can't because the church is overtaking them. This, first of all, speaks of boldness. You remember that suit of armor used in Ephesians 6? Has boots that keep you from being able to run has armor, but, but what's protected? The front of you. What's not protected? The back of you. Why, why did they, the Romans design it that way? They didn't want people running in battle, right? And that's the idea. The church is to be an advancing army that has strength when it's linked with one another. The church is is one directional. It's advancing towards the enemy and taking territory. It speaks of boldness. It speaks of breaching. It speaks of breaching. The strongholds that are mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, where it says that the the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're they're spiritual and they're mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. Those are spiritual ideas or places where the enemy holds up in a culture, in a society, in a world, right? And holds people captive. Now, when, when a wall surrounded a city, that was the first line of defense. The second line of defense was that after they had, uh, the enemy had breached the wall, you would retreat to these last sort of bastions where you could defend yourself. These were strongholds, usually really thick-walled uh, corridors with tight uh, entryways and, and uh, you know, reinforced doors so that you could try and hold out in there as long as possible and maybe some rescuing army would come and save you. Here's, here's the idea. 1 Corinthians 10 is describing a city where the walls have been breached and the enemy has been pressed into a little hidey holes throughout the city. The city is already taken. 
This is pocket warfare. Because the enemy is making his last stand. You see, the church is going to be this dynamic thing, Jesus says. Upon this confession, I'm going to build it so strong, it's going to be bold. It's going to be overtaking the, the, the gates of the city. And then the enemy is going to be on the run, put to flight. They'll run into these last little strongholds. But our weapons are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. Every lofty thing that exalts itself against God is being torn open and the enemy is being plundered. It speaks of boldness. It speaks of breaching. It speaks of breakouts. You see, when the city is broken into, the captives are freed. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 to 26 says this, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will here's what's happening the 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 church is this military force that is advancing on the territory of the enemy and it speaks of their boldness it speaks of them breaching the city it speaks of them breaking out the captives and setting them free and rescuing those who've been caught in the snare of the devil this is the image not that i have chosen this is the image that jesus chose to describe his church so here's the conclusion Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 says this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here's here's the final picture. Jesus, then, is this captain of our salvation. He has run headlong into battle for our freedom and has conquered the enemy, leaving behind only spoils and pocket warfare. We are on mop-up duty, church. We're spoiling the enemy. We're freeing the captives. We're taking the strongholds that remain. That is the call that God has made to us as a church. Listen, the church is not an audience. It's an army. The church is not a club. It's a military garrison. The church is not a passive social scene. It's an active resistance of freedom fighters. The church is not an entertainment center. It is a highly trained force to be reckoned with in the spirit world. The church is not a gathering of the polite and nice. Why? Because being a part of the church of Jesus is one of the most dangerous and rewarding things that you could ever do. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder as it defines for us an aspect, a facet of what the church is to be. And God, we are your church. It's us. May we walk in what you've called us to.
in complete confidence and surrender to you, the captain of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful night.